Gospel of Matthew. You have heard it said, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a truth for tooth. But I tell you, do not reduce, resist an evil person. For if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to the turn the other cheek to them also. Also, if anyone wants to sue you to take your shirt, hand your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it said to love your neighbor and to hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and good and sends rain on the righteous and the wicked. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you, are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Kelly today. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. Are the two teachings we have before us today. And these are deep and hard teachings. Uh, you can imagine, um, in one sense, a sermon on this could be reading the text and say, go and do likewise. And we would be like many in the church tradition who have been like, you're going to have to give me more than that. Um, this sounds like an intense and difficult teaching. This sounds like a, a call to give up that of which all that we are. And I think part of the challenge with, with this teaching, um, well, part of the challenge is we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, instructions for building the house, which is both our lives and more commonly the church, upbuilding of the church, is what we find is that as we go through these, these teachings is they're very hard now, I, I said this earlier when we got to anger and lust, is that most of the time in my Christian life, there are sort of like two schools of thought. One is like, don't think about it that hard. Um, and the second is sort of the self-righteous sort of weaponization of these texts. I don't think either of those groups are necessarily grappling with the tests, the, the teachings, nor are they grappling with the call that Jesus has on us. Because if you think this is easy, and it's something you can use against somebody else, I don't think you've sat with it very long. And if you think that it's something that you can just throw off, then, then you have to look at the pattern of the one who came to us in Jesus Christ. And so we've walked with the Sermon on the Mount. So far, Jesus has blessed this community. Um, he has then called them to be salt and light, that which is essential for the world. And then he has, he has taught them about anger and adultery and oaths in a way that gives them fulfillment of life in the world. That they are to be these people who have this better righteousness than the Pharisees, which is a, a big teaching as well. And so this teaching today is the last of the better righteousness in the ethical or moral frame. Next week, we'll start the better righteousness in almsgiving and in prayer and in fasting the sort of theological realm or the realm as we are referenced to God. 
And so we read Leviticus again today. Allie, you, you were here when we went through Leviticus, and you came back, and you're like, will these people ever move on? Um, we have moved on, but, but Jesus is, is this one who fulfills these laws. He says, I did not come to abolish these things, but to fulfill them. And that teaching that Brian read for us has many good things, but it contains um, it, both the call to love your neighbor as you love yourself, but also to be holy because I am the Lord your God. And the teaching today ended with, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The challenge on why many Christians, I think, come to these teachings and say they're there to prove that we are not Jesus, and that's about it, is something to say to be perfect is not within our realm. Now, at the end of the sermon, we will get into what the word for perfect is here and why maybe we shouldn't be that bad. But, but even from Leviticus, there's this call for the people of Israel to be holy, as their Lord, the one who they can't approach, the one whom consumes them with fire when they worship unworthily, to be holy as that one is holy. These are hard teachings. And so this, back to this quote, which we've used that maybe will fade as we go forward, is as Christians, we ought to live the ethic, the life of the sermon. We are human, however, and cannot live the sermon perfectly. This is where a lot of people would stop. But what we say through this quote, which I stole from someone and then made in reference to the Sermon on the Mount, we ought to therefore recognize both our obligation, that we are called to do this, and in grace from the one who goes before us and suffers for us, our inability to do so. And by that very recognition, give glory to God. That Christ has laid upon us this command to be holy as he is holy, to be perfect as he is holy, and yet we know we are human and frail and that might be too much. But instead of giving up, we recognize our inability to do so, and in that way we give glory to God as we attempt to live it out. That we might shine the light of good deeds, as it said earlier, that we might participate in God. And I think one of the things that we have with this is there is an external word to us in these two passages. We talk a lot in the modern world about being authentic to yourself. For Israelites and Jews, there is one or who is outside of us. It's not being authentic to ourselves, but the stronger pull that we are pulled to is to be holy as that one is holy, to be perfect as that one is perfect. So the problem with authenticity, which is, has a bit of a, a cult following in the modern world, and it's not all bad, but like there are some people when I was in seminary, they'd be like, I don't think, and they might have been talking about me, but uh, you're being your authentic person right now. And I was like, who says you can't authentically be a jerk? <laughs> um, they might have been talking about me, I'm not going to say. But, you know, the idea is, is you're an authentic person, may not be a person that much worth being sometimes. Authentically, I am short-tempered. Authentically, I get anger, uh, angry very fast. Authentically, I can be a snob. And yet these are not what we're called to. We're called to something that's without of ourselves. And, and this is perhaps one of the greatest struggles in the modern world, is that to have a source of being that is not your subjective self, that is not bound within your own soul, that's what we want. 
We want to be the ones who set this own agenda. You can go all the way back to, to Genesis where they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to be like God's. To be holy as I am holy. To be perfect as I am perfect. Which brings to that light, we sang for the song we sang for the first time today that flower and beauty fade with us, and it was like, oh, so true. Um, even my perfection, if I were to want to claim that, is a fading one at best. It doesn't remain. And so it is for Christians to have this external word to us, and I think the, the, before we move sort of into this sermon, which is harder to say, is that, is that we all stand under the judgment of the cross, and it is there we meet Jesus who comes to us and rescues and redeems us and encourages us to follow his example. There is no way in which there is a person who doesn't stand there. And so we don't weaponize these passages. It will be more important next week with almsgiving. But what we hear from these passages is that we stand under judgment in our native human state. And what God has done in teaching us and commanding us and calling us into this new people, this salt and light through the Sermon on the Mount, is set us on a new plane, but we still stand there nonetheless. And so God has set us free. So the second thing I want to talk about, there is, there is underlaying layers to this work, and a bit of it is about my own journey with these things towards um, Christian nonviolence, pacifism, leading, living peaceably in the world, is there is an interpretation of these passages and much of Scripture that is deeply pragmatic today. You turn the other cheek, you love your enemies, because that's what works. We want these things to work. So there is a famous teaching uh, from Walter Wink on the turn the other cheek, um, give up your cloak, uh, walk the extra mile, and um, giving to the needy, although it doesn't quite work with the needy, is that goes like this, is when a person slaps you on your right cheek like this, it was going to act this out, but we can't be too close to each other today. So that is the first problem that makes this passage unapplicable. This person is not socially distant from the other person if they can slap them on the cheek. And you offer to them the other side of your mask. Um, is, is that um, things change. That's a hard truth about this. Is that if you slap somebody like this across the right cheek, right? And Jesus' instruction to turn the other cheek is a is an engagement in the world that forces them to recognize you as an e equal. This is the way w Wink talks about this, uh, which is a great name to say at this moment. And, uh, on the um, walking the extra mile, it was, there's some evidence that Roman soldiers could make you carry their pack, and within that world, there were limits to how far they could make you carry it. And so the thing that happens um, is that Wink is saying, you know, they can make you carry it a mile, but you reclaim your dignity and put them to shame by carrying it the second mile. On the cloak one, this is interesting. In the ancient world, most of us are, you know, say in the ancient world, I was about to say, being naked in front of somebody is a shameful act, but I'm not sure you need to precede that with. In the ancient world, <laughs> uh, it had a higher sense of shame. The person naked was shamed, but also the person who saw the nakedness was ashamed. I think that was more true in the ancient world. There was a great shame. And so the logic on these two cloaks, these two things, which is that there's an inner one and an outer one. And if somebody takes the one, you offer them the other, and now you've brought them into shame with your nakedness. 
giving to the needy, it didn't really work with. But, but what Wink has done here um, has made, and many people would teach these, as if Jesus teaches us these things so they, they will work. I think creative engagement, which these passages open up to, is a good thing. But the one who models these things ends up naked on a cross and dies for the sins of the world as he turns the other cheek, offers up his clothes, and goes the extra mile carrying his cross. While I'd like to say that these teachings are for us so that they will work, pick up your cross and follow me implies that these teachings are for us as we follow Christ to his death. Now, I think in hope, we can say with Wink, that these creative engagements with with what is happening in the world can bring about some goodness and perhaps bring about reconciliation and such. But if you think that's the goal of these passages, I think we're missing the point. One of the things that helped bring me to Christian nonviolence is a quote from Stanley Harwas. He'll show up a couple times, which he said that nonviolence is not a strategy to rid the world of violence. It might, in fact, make the world more violent. Christian nonviolence in that way. But it's what we're called to be. It's not an effective strategy that Jesus has stamped so that we will find um, our best life now. It is what God has called his people and church into in the world. That, that when I heard that, I often thought that, that pacifism was naive because it didn't work. But I had not heard anybody, a Christian, say, oh, but that's the point. We are bound, and, and, and the quote on the back of the bulletin, I think, confronts this well. The heart of the Sermon on the Mount is not the conviction that the cross is the conviction that the cross and not the sword, suffering and not brutal power, determines the meaning of history. The key to the obedience of God's people is not their effectiveness, but their patience. The triumph of the right is not assured by the might that comes to the aid of the right, which is, of course, the justification for the use of violence and other kinds of power in every human conflict. The triumph of the right, although it is assured, is sure because of the power of the resurrection, and not because of any calculation of causes and effects, not, nor because of the inherent, uh, inherently great strength of the good guys. The relationship between obedience of God's people and the triumph of God's uh, cause is not a relationship between cause and effect. It's not pragmatic. It'll work. But between one of cross and resurrection. It's a relationship that deals with the power of God. The next thing is I want to talk about that the call of the Christian life is to live peaceably in the world. And what we negotiate over in in this discussion of the traditions and how far we take this stuff is the exceptions to that. So somebody, this sermon is not meant to be an ad for Christian nonviolence or an argument about it, because by arguing about it, you kind of prove it wrong to some degree. Um, It doesn't work that way. Um, but, But to say is that within this church and within this tradition, we try not to think about the exceptions too much. The call is to live peaceably in the world. So Stanley Hauerwas, again, um, Uh, he said, you know, we've got to really move beyond quandary ethics, which brings to the question, what is quandary ethics? (laughs) 
Um, quandary ethics, and this is Stanley's example, so don't blame me for this. He says, well, you're stuck in a tube that's filling up with water, and the biggest or fattest of you tries to get out first, and they clog up the tomb. Is it right to blow him up to get out of the tube, or is it, is it wrong and you guys all suffocate, but they live because their head is out? And that we use quandaries or problems like this to then say, well, it's simple. To, if you blow the guy up, then Hiroshima or Nagasaki. Um, and what Stanley wants to say is doing ethics that way is perhaps the wrong way to do ethics. What we should do is aim for what our goal is and then deal with the causes of life as they come to us. And we talked about this with Psalm 120 where it says, I say I am for peace, but they say I am for war. If you, if you have the privilege of ever telling another Christian, you know, well, I believe that our call is to live peaceably in the world, and that might go further than you think it is. They go instantly to the worst thing that you could. What would you do if your daughter was getting raped? What would you do if your grandma was getting shot? Well, it's like, that escalated quickly. I say I am for peace, and it instantly wants to go Here's the justifications for war. Like I said, I don't want to say, as, as the second thing I want to say about this is that it defines church. This is part of the way of life. It's not the goal to get you to agree with this teaching of, of Christian nonviolence. The goal is to say that in our way upon the life of this earth is that we aim to live peaceably. We aim to walk in that way. This is not a convince or end up here or the goal of any conversation, but the way in which we think through where we've been called into the world, what is the way to live peaceably in that place? And what I have found helpfully true is almost all the Christians agree on this. We can talk about exceptions later, but that's a different thing. Today we'll talk about it as if this is the goal of our life with God, and we can raise the questions of what to do about other things another day. This is one other thing that Stanley says is that he hates the language of pacifism because it's so damn passive. And when asked why he's a pacifist, he says because, and he's a Texan, I'm quoting him, so don't think, he says because I'm a violent son of a bitch. Um, and so he needs that in his life to ground him. He knows that his natural proclivity is towards violence and not even righteous violence just violence and so why did he find himself with this call to live peaceably in the world because otherwise he would be an authentically violent stanley Hauerwas, rather than one who is called to be holy as god is holy called to be perfect as god is perfect one other thought before we get into the text is we talked last week about how what happens, it seems, is the more Christian a society gets, the less Christian it gets at the same time. And so the example last week was oaths. Jesus says, no taking oaths. And what happens very quickly is, as Christianity around the fourth century, uh, the conversion of Constantine, they say, Jesus forbids oaths, but they are useful in the service of X. Um, we, we pulled from the Anglican... Um, Articles of, of Faith, uh, which that church is governed by, and Article 29 is exactly that. Jesus forbids oaths, 
But <laughs> as people who lead a whole country, they're useful for jurisdiction and this, that, and the other. And this is the same with, with the Christian teaching on nonviolence or, or pacifism or living peaceably is for the first three centuries-ish of, of church history, um, almost everybody would not uh, join up to serve in the army or to go to war or to do this thing. And then around the fourth century, as the empire becomes Christian, they start to say, perhaps we can, we can adjust that standard because now there's this sort of justice thing with it. And I, what do you do when the empire wants to become Christian is a deep and hard question. I'm a, I don't have the answer to that. Um, I don't know what they should have done, but that we can kind of see this inverse relationship as the more Christian it gets the less the cost of discipleship tends to be lowered. I was talking to Emily about church. Kierkegaard has this problem in, in, in um, Denmark during his time is that, is that uh, it's a very Christian society, but everybody, his example is everybody admires the chair of faith in Jesus Christ, but nobody wants to sit in it. Um, you know, it's, and so he's trying to call them back to this. Uh, uh, many Christians that are sort of outside the box from the monastic movement onward are those who kind of see that we've gotten a very Christian thing, but we've lost the tooth and the reform. And so that's certainly true with this passage as well, is that that changes around the fourth century, so much so that when you would go to battle, you would come back and do confession. Um, and then at first it's outlawed for priests. Everybody else can go, but priests can't. Um, my favorite example of this makes... The Orthodox Church still forbids their priests from going, but you can get pictures of them like blessing big bombs, which is like, uh, not sure that's what they meant. Um, you get this divide between how you're called to, Christi- called to Christian life as a professional and how you're called to live the Christian life as just a citizen. Um, and I think m- most of us think that's a really hard divide to keep all the time. Um, uh, it's, it's sort of one thing that Jesus wants. There's no, you're, you're more professional, you're less, so you've got a lighter burden. And, and this brings us to the Protestant Reformation. Anyways, moving forward. Um, these passages begin with the same teaching that Jesus said, is that you have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, uh, tooth for a tooth, uh, eye for an eye, but I say to you, uh, you have heard it said uh, to love your neighbors, but to hate uh, your enemies, um, but I say to you, same pattern. And one of the things we've missed is this directive on the I say to you. This is part of the reason why the people are amazed after Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount is that he speaks with authority. If you were to translate it almost literally, it would be amen, I say to you. It is so, I say to you, that, that Jesus is one who speaks uh, with the authority of, of almost a new lawgiver, a new Moses, which is, of course, what he's embodying here. But that's what amazes them about it, is he speaks not in, in games and such, but very directly to these things, and not, you know, if we wait it this way or if we consider it, but cuts sort of right through it as the one who is the sole most interpreter of Torah is what he's coming to. Needless to say, we, we can't separate the advice on hatred or lust or oaths or turn the other cheek from the one who gives us that command. But I say to you, perhaps these things are not a good advice for the whole world, but meant for the church, meant for those called close to Jesus on this mount. But I say to you, 
In this first one, um, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, uh, in the modern world, we go, it's, it's a pretty intense standard for courts, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But in the ancient world, this actually set up a retributable system. So um, your cow kills my cow, I get to go over and decimate your whole herd. No, what in the ancient world, and this is sort of, you find this in the Code of Hammurabi, this is one of the most ancient ways of setting up a just society, we miss that when we read this passage, is to say that what has happened to you, you can't go beyond. So if somebody takes your eye, barbaric, but you can take their eye, but you can't take their head. It was meant to limit the construction. And, and when societies get to this point where they say it's an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, which is what the ancient Israelites were called into as well, they be begin to say, then what's more just from there? Somebody killed your cow. I guess you could go over and kill their cow, but what if there was a financial penalty that replaced the cow? But it's the undergirding of a, of a legal system that's meant to be ethical. I think we hear it nowadays, and we're like, that's just retribution and this, that, and the other. But it was meant for, to help build a just society, which is why it's, it's even weirder what Jesus says about this. But I tell you not to resist the evil person. This I learned this week, um, and I don't like preaching on stuff I learned this week because it means I haven't sat with it long enough. But the previous oath one is that if you want to say more than yes, yes, no, no, uh, it comes from the evil one. In the sermon, in the Lord's Prayer, uh, it's been changed because of the King James, but most people believe that we pray, deliver us not from evil, but the evil one, that the Greek construction is such that we pray for to be delivered from the evil one. What's interesting is that that same Greek phrase is in this passage, do not resist the evil one. And what the church, when this interpretation has been more valid, takes that to mean is that the one who does violence unto you is more like a possessed one than they are the person. The desire to strike, to steal, to rob doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from the nature of being possessed is what this is talking about. And so you'll get Paul in the book of Ephesians saying that our battle is not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and power. Or, and this is one that, that Carl Jung, who showed up earlier in the sermon series, pointed out is that people don't have ideas. Ideas have people. When you think of how a whole group of people can get possessed, like the Salem witch trials, just to pick on the most benign example I can think of, um, it's not that they had that idea, but that an idea had captured people. There are witches, and we don't know who they are. We must rid them out. And they go to great lengths to do that. And you could, you could pick on Nazi Germany. You could pick on all these other things. Where it doesn't, How do people get to that point? It might be that they're not having an idea, but an idea that comes from possession has gotten a hold of them. And so Jesus calls us not to resist the evil one in allusion to perhaps, perhaps that these people might be ones who are possessed and not of the right mind or right sort. The 
The second thing with this is on um, turning the other cheek and uh, giving up your shirt and going the extra mile is that I think what, what I've kind of alluded to is Jesus is not so much giving us new, he's giving us direction for a new life, but not directions. So if we finish the antitheses, which we'll finish today, these six teachings on you have heard it said by and say to you and say, glad that's over with. He can't up the standard on anything else. We've missed the point. Christ is setting us in a different plane, in a different place, to be a people of his kingdom or a people of new creation, a, a people who are different. And what he seems to be saying in this passage is that is it, there's this, in, in English it's, it's seldom translated this way, but don't repay evil. And it's to say that evil stops earning its income. The evil, or the evil one, stops earning its income with Christians. Retribution is how these things go on and on and on. So much so that nobody knows how the Hatfields and McCoys started. It's what we call a feud or war. And it just continues in this cycle forever. And what Jesus is calling Christians to is to not jump into the cycle of continuous. Perhaps it takes one thing to bring that about. And what we see, though, is that Jesus is the one who goes to the cross in his passion. Uh, Bonhoeffer, who we've picked up a couple times during this book, says about this, this teaching is that the passion of Jesus as the overcoming of evil by divine love is the only solid foundation for disciples' obedience. With his command, Jesus calls the disciples again into communion with his passion. How will the preaching of the passion of Jesus Christ become visible and credible to the world if the disciples avoid this passion for themselves, if they despise it in their own bodies? Through his cross, Jesus himself fulfilled the law he gives us. In his, his, his commandment, he graciously keeps his disciples in communion with his cross. In the cross alone, it is true, and that real suffering is the retribution for and overcoming of evil. That suffering is the retribution for and the overcoming of evil. Participation is in the cross is given to the disciples to the call of discipleship. They are blessed in this visible community. That what Bonhoeffer is saying is that when we participate in this, we participate in Jesus' passion. And so much so, the visible community of the church, when they participate in this, is how this becomes real for the world. Which brings us to our next teaching. You have heard it said to love your neighbor and to hate your enemies. Uh, I don't want to get into it because we're short on time. Does, does Judaism teach hate your em enemies? No, in, in explicit form, but in the imprecatory psalm, it's in other places, it does seem like that's kind of it. And, and love your neighbor in the book of Leviticus had the sense of kindred, not actually all your neighbor. It meant sort of kin to some degree. And so that's the thing he's corrected here. But, but uh, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. This is the last one of these six teachings, and I was thinking about it, it, which is easier, to turn the other cheek or to love your enemies? And I came to the opinion, you can come to your own, is that to turn the other cheek is like, glad that's over with. But to wish well on the one who does you harm, who frustrates your life, who is evil unto you, is a greater step. Just the behavior, okay, here's my coat too. 
you think you're done. The call to love that person and then to pray for them doesn't mean you're done. I think that's why this teaching follows the next one, this love of enemies. And this is perhaps one of the greatest challenges because I think one of the things I often say is that you need to to name people as enemies because then you know you're called to love them. And so just to pick on the election, if a whole group of people are your enemy because they're voting a certain way, guess what you get to do tomorrow? Pray for them and love them. But in a more located way, if you have coworkers who bug you, I work alone, so I'm exempt from that teaching. But if you have coworkers who bug you and, and well, I have congregants, so I guess there's that. Um, the, uh, you're the, just confessed. Uh, the, if you have people in your life who you're always like, that person, my, my anxiety or my, my blood pressure goes up when they come around. In the modern world, we try to be nice, which I think is one of the worst things Christian for us. Certainly try to be nice in your interactions with other people. But to be nice, to be like, oh, they're not my enemy. They're just somebody who whenever they're near me, I want to punch them. Um, uh, they frustrate me to no end. They're, and, and many of us are married. This might be them. Uh, many of us have kids. It might be them. And I think what imaginatively we can do from this teaching is own that some of these people might be appropriately for this time or for this space to be called an enemy. Because when we do that, we no longer neuter Jesus' teaching for us. The category of this person just annoys me, Jesus doesn't have a teaching necessarily to help you there. But if you're bold enough and honest enough to say, you know, I think that the neighbor who does that thing all the time is better understood as an enemy. Then the gospel comes alive. You have a vocation now. You have work to do, to love and to pray for them. And Jesus says it this way, and I, uh, this teaching has always baffled me, is that... Is that um, I'll read it so I don't mess it up, is that he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Why do good things happen to bad uh, people uh, is a good question, as well as why do good, bad things happen to good people. And what the Jesus is teaching is, is that God, in his providential care for us, is, treats us more or less the same. If you are good, there will be rain, which might be a benefit in this teaching, and there will be pain. There will be sun and there will be rain. If you are evil, there will be sun as if and there is rain. And what then he inspires us to do is to be the same with people. I mean, it would, it would be interesting if God was like, well, this place gets some rain because a Christian lives here, and then the neighbor's house gets no rain. Um, but we know that's not the world we live in. And one of the great things about the Sermon on the Mount is it tells the truth about the world we live in. Rain and sun fall on righteous and good. And because it is this way with your Father, it is to be so with you. It is in this way we become um, children of your Father in heaven. Going back to the um, Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. 
when we talked about that, we talked about some of these Beatitudes are naive people. Most of the time when I hang out with somebody who's like, you know, we're called to be peacemakers here. I'm like, okay, well, you get out. Um, That is not helpful. And yet in that way, when we actually accept that this is, and it's a thing we make. I love that phrase. It's peacemaking. It's not like peace enforcing or peace changing. or um, it, It's not like um, my parents are here. This is not, uh, I use people as an example all the time. Uh, this is not an example of my household. But like, you know, the peace at a dinner table where it's like it's peaceful because nobody's allowed to say anything. Um, uh, we've been in those spots before. Not with my parents. Um, but, uh, you know, that this is a peace we make in the world, and it's this way we become children of God. We begin to be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So perfect here. Um, perfect here is this um, word that, that best is probably translated fully mature. The Greek word for perfect um, is sort of this way in which we stretch out and become more of what we are. So if you think about uh, the Christian as uh, a seed, which is one example Jesus will use often, what is it to become? It's to become something that is planted and grows into what it is. The Greek word uh, uh, teleos has this way in which it's the fulfillment of what we are. So we become these seeds because of this relationship to the Father. And when planted, we become like his son in the world. We grow into the character of the thing. We grow into Christ-likeness. It's not something we make or comes to us all of a sudden. It's not that we're perfect in this static state, which is the way that we tend to think of perfect in our world, but that we mature into what God has called us to be. We are called to be those people developing towards full maturity as God has, is that one who is fully mature himself. And the last thing, um, Jesus models this perfectly in the conclusion to his life. There's this way in which we have Jesus figures in our movies, and what they often admit is Jesus is the perfect unity of word and deed. Jesus, Jesus figures in movies and books is often um, somebody who sacrificially dies for everybody else, which is part of what Jesus does. But more classically understood, also what Jesus does is he models his word. He keeps his promises. What he teaches, he does. Jesus is the one who walks this path before us and enables to go that way. But this scene is how we're back in the Gospel of Matthew again. The last time we preached through it, it came to this realization is that Matthew uses 13 times, 15 times in the Sermon on the Mount, this phrase, Father in heaven, heavenly Father, uh, our Father, um, who is in heaven, 15 times in the Sermon on the Mount. And what it is for Christians is to become the little ones of God to become the children of God through this way it's revealed in Jesus Christ. The Pauline literature and his letters um, inspire us into uh, adoption through Jesus Christ and, and see this in a, in a very sort of um, 
transactional way like adoption. And I think that Paul has a weighty and important point there. But in Matthew's gospel, it seems more like Jesus is revealing to us who we were meant to be all along. As the Son of God, he's modeling perfectly what it is to be a child of God. And through him, we receive the grace and the goodness to follow him into this better righteousness that he has modeled for us. To be a people called out for the sake of the world and to witness to the reign of God that Jesus is announcing in his Sermon on the Mount. Let us pray. God, you have called us communally to be your people. To be people who don't see the world in the category of contempt and hatred. Who say to others, you fool. To be a people who don't consume others lustfully. To be a people of faithfulness in our relationships and marriage. To be a people of the word, our word. To not make promises by great things, but to simply yet our yes be yes and no be no. And so too you have called us to be people who end cycles of retribution and take suffering on ourselves as it is capable for us the way you did and the way you modeled in your son, Jesus Christ. And to more than that, to go beyond into loving the people who persecute us, praying for them, seeing that with those who are good to us, we can be good to them, and like God, for those who are bad to us, we can still be good to them. And in this way, God, may we follow the pattern of your Son and become your children. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.